You're listening to That'll Preach. Today on our show, we have Dr. Matt Hoskin. He is a scholar who teaches ancient and medieval Christian history for Davenant Hall. His research focuses on manuscripts, monks, popes, canon law, and councils, which all feature in his book, The Manuscripts of Leo the Great's Letters. He also blogs about the historic faith at Classically Christian. So, uh, Matt, we're really glad to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you, Brian, for having me on. I always love to talk about all of the things that I do. It's, it's a fascinating uh, collection of things that you study. Uh, one of the things in particular, which is why I wanted you on the show, was uh, your work on the Desert Fathers and the sort of the mystic tradition in Christianity. I remember I, I took a class with you through Davenant Hall, and that was quite the experience because I've always heard, you know, as like a reformed evangelical, you know, you kind of you kind of stay away from the those you know ascetics in the in, in the desert, the monks, the guys who stand on pillars and don't talk, and it, it seems like that's a little extra Christianity, and uh, they were sort of seen as a foil, maybe maybe to the Reformation or something like that. But then as I took your class, I realized, you know, there's a lot to learn from these guys that they were very pious people, and uh, maybe it's a part of history that we neglect to our detriment. So I want to have you on here and just pick your brain about that and hear a little bit about the Desert Fathers, their traditions, and what we can learn from them. Um, so maybe to start, what got you interested in studying the Desert Fathers? Well, that's an interesting question. I was going to say it's an interesting story, but it may not actually turn out to be once people hear it. So when I was an undergrad, I was really into St. Francis, and St. Francis of Assisi is not one of the Desert Fathers. He's, you know, he's around in Italy in the Middle Ages in the 1200s, um, but I found him a fascinating figure, um, his sort of, his own sort of ecstatic piety, which sort of resonated. I'm, I have an Anglican upbringing, but I grew up in, the, in a charismatic congregation, so sort of to see that sort of thing going on in the Middle Ages was super fascinating to me. And I was also around the same time being introduced to the poetry of St. John of the Cross, who is even later in the 1500s, another, but he's, he's another monk. And so I sort of had these two sort of monastic influences on me in my early 20s. And I took a course in my classics degree about pagans and Christians in the later Roman Empire. And I was like, oh, yeah, hey, look, monks. And uh, a friend said, you should, do, you should do your research essay on those crazy guys who moved into the desert. And I thought, why don't I do that? And so I started researching the Desert Fathers. I picked up a translation of the sayings of the Desert Fathers that had just come out from Penguin, sort of in my early years of undergrad. And so it was sort of there. And I was reading these sayings full of like deep wisdom, but also things that seemed a bit weird to me and a bit off, which only deepens the fascination <clears throat> that these aren't, these are neither your sort of, the stage sort of traditionalist Anglican churches that say my grandfather was a minister in, in Northern Alberta, but they're also not the sort of, if this is also not the charismatic movement, um, waving hands either, this is something other. And it was very fascinating to sort of get into that and start reading these sources themselves. But then especially for me, sort of for the desert father's story is I spent a year working for InterVarsity on the island of Cyprus, which is in the Eastern Mediterranean. It's the second largest island in the Mediterranean, just south of Turkey and about 90 miles from the coast of Syria. And there I met some Orthodox priests of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And I started reading some more, some different 
um, material of the Desert Fathers as well, and sort of visited some of these monasteries and things that themselves, this is not an ad for Eastern Orthodoxy, but it is a living, it's an ongoing, unbroken living tradition that is related to the Desert Fathers. And so meeting people who were themselves today in this modern world trying to live like the Desert Fathers did was very, was equally fascinating to me that this wasn't just, you know, me sitting in a room alone with a Penguin Classic wondering what on earth this had to do with me. This is something that there are living human beings who are trying to live out today. And so those sort of two experiences of just reading this stuff for research as a student and then encountering its lived existence in the Orthodox had made me want to bring this to my own Protestant heritage and bring these two things together. So talk a little bit about these Desert Fathers. What got them to go seek solitude or go live, you know, in little communes out in the desert? What motivated this kind of movement? When, when did it happen and what motivated it? So our, our, the sort of what we think of as like the first Desert Father, I guess, we want to think of it is a guy called Antony the Great. And he left what we call sort of urban civilization in the late 200s. And he sort of is the beginning of this movement of guys who start leaving the cities in Egypt. That's where he was from. He was sort of from the region around Alexandria. Alexandria is the coastal city of Egypt, right on the Mediterranean Sea, where the Nile River has its delta. And so he sort of left there, and he went off into mountains and, and desert, into this sort of hinterland where it's not, it's not deep desert where you'll just die, but it's not easily cultivated. It's, it's not a happy place to live. And so he went off there, and he's sort of the guy who started this movement. People noticed him, and more people started doing the same thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it really started taking off in the 300s, though, is when most of the other famous desert fathers started going into the desert. And there are a few causes for this. One of them is early in the century is a flight from persecution sometimes, that you're concerned about... Um, the final persecution comes in like 304 from the Roman officials, and it's the actual worst. So the last one is also the worst one. It's the one where the most people are killed, um, the most Bibles are burned, the most churches are torn down, and all of these things are going on. So a lot of guys just run into the desert and turn into hermits by almost by accident. And then another factor is sort of this feeling later on after 312, this is the year when the Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian, there are sorts of sort of two things going on for city life as a Christian. One is this feeling that the cities have been conquered by Christ now, if you're sort of pro-imperial Christianity. Um, but the desert, the desert remains this untamed place where you can go and you can um, go alone and fight the demons is, is part of that. Um, there's also a feeling amongst some that urban Christianity has become compromised now that the purity of the old faith is starting to get tainted by you sort of these aristocrats who just like want to get favor with the emperor. So they get baptized, but they're not really trying to lead a holy life. And so they, there's a feeling that to be an example to them, as well as to truly be able to pursue holiness, you have to go out from the city and into the desert. And so the, those are like the, what we would call some of the biggest ones. But one of the other reasons why in the fourth century anyone would become one of these desert ascetics who goes off and lives in a cave alone or builds a hut or lives in one of these sort of these communities, these loose communities of monks is the same one that has always driven them, even before we thought of them as monks, even before they were called the Desert Fathers, um, something that drives 
today, the monastic movement, is the desire to just focus your entire attention on God. And so there's a, and so that's what drives, if you ask a specific person, like say there's one man called Abba Arsenios, who is a senator. And you say, well, why did you leave the aristocratic life to go into the desert? He says, well, because the aristocratic life was full of too many distractions, was full of too many worldly burdens. And all I really want is to focus my whole attention, my whole heart upon God. Because that ultimately is at the heart of what a monk is. Uh, the Greek word for monk is monachos, which is, means a solitary, a person who is alone. But there's a sense in which the true monk isn't necessarily alone in terms of not being with other people, but is actually single-minded, um, which in Greek is monotropes. So a single-minded person who is single-mindedly devoted to God. And so they have cut themselves off from all of the various associations of worldly society, which for us today, because we have a much more individualistic society, I think it's harder for us to understand the sort of cutting off that this would be and why it might be attractive. But if you're part of urban life in the later Roman Empire, you're somebody's patron, you're somebody's client, you're going to be like a client of more than one guy, maybe a patron of more than one guy, all at the same time. And if you have a certain wealth, you have all sorts of legal responsibilities that you have to do according to law. And all just sort of the burdens of civic life start to pile up. And I think for a lot of Christians, they're looking at that and they're thinking, but how is that compatible with having the time to read? How do I fulfill those worldly civic duties, but also have the time to read the scriptures, to memorize them by heart, to pray and to love my neighbor when I'm so busy going and waiting on, you know, um, Marcus Plautus in his waiting room, in his atrium to get favor, to be able to get a thing done for someone else who's also waiting on me. And so then this desire to free yourselves of the chains of the Roman social system of whatever class you are is, I think, another thing so that you can be free to love God and not be constrained by social custom. So that's, that's like my big pitch for what they're doing in terms of time period. Um, mostly, if you start talking to people or you want to go on the internet, people, when they say the Desert Fathers, they generally mean this sort of fourth century Egypt and Palestine and Syria, and then on sort of petering out sometime in the fifth century. But there's really good literature still coming from this sort of sweeping crescent of area um, going on. I mean, well, going, I like to say cut it off from maybe 600, like the rest of the ancient church. They're still producing um, important works along the way. And actually, yeah. Did they have a sense that they were returning to a maybe more pure kind of Christianity? Were they sort of going like, we're going to, there, there's things in New Testament that we need to recapture, you know, was it kind of like a retrieval movement of a truer Christian life or what, what were they, how were they envisioning their movement? Definitely some of them had that retrieval sense. Um, there's this one guy called Pachomius and Pachomius is the other great founder of Egyptian monasticism. So I talked about Antony. Antony is sort of a, he's this hermit figure who gets a community that naturally develops around him. Pachomius consciously creates a community. And his community, it's in, it's in more southern Egypt, what is called Upper Egypt, because you're going upstream on the Nile. And Pachomius's community is consciously modeling itself on the community in Jerusalem in Acts, that you're sharing everything in common and 
you know, you're praying together, you're breaking bread together, everything is being done in common because they say, this is what the apostolic way is. And they say, this is something that we lost at some point. And they'll say, they'll say, we lost it long before Constantine was converted. We had lost this apostolic way of life. And now, without persecution, we are free to pursue it as we wish. And so that's sort of, that's what's going on with Pocomi. So that's there, definitely. What kinds of practices did this monastic lifestyle include? What were some of the things that they were doing? That's a great question. Um, a lot of what they're doing is things, say, if you were to read Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline, they're doing all those things, but to like a more extreme degree, as I guess what you would say. So they will eat once a day in the afternoon, mid-afternoon, around, I guess what we would call three o'clock. It is an example of the sort of thing that they would eat once, and it would only be something like dried bread um, in order to gain control of the appetites. Because there's a belief that um, your physical body and your spiritual body are a united, a united reality, that the human person is, in fact, a spiritual and physical whole. And so the things you do with the, this physical stuff that we're made out of have a spiritual impact and the other way around. So one of the remarkable things about Antony is that his holiness means that um, he will go intense periods of fasting and his spiritual health maintains his bodily health. That he doesn't end up weak, he doesn't end up emaciated um, because he is so spiritually strong, his spirit maintains him. And so then you have to you have to tame both the body and the spirit to attain holiness. And so you um, control your eating, you control your sleeping. They don't believe in sleeping too much. This is actually pretty common. I think until electric lights, you don't sleep in um, and, and all of that sort of thing. And in fact, in one monastery, they determined that you should never actually get a good night's sleep, which seems a little bit crazy to me still. Um, but that so they invented these beds that are angled at something like a 45 degree angle. So you never get a really good sleep. And so so like I say, we don't have to adapt everything that they do. Right. But they're trying. What they're doing is this vast experiment, especially in the 300s, of various things. But things like fasting or getting a little, only a little bit of sleep are all geared towards the ultimate goal, which is praying. And so then they, they come, and many of them will memorize the entire book of Psalms, which none of us have done. Um, but this is, this is an astonishingly common thing in ancient and medieval monks, that the first thing you do is memorize Psalms. Because then you can pray anytime and anywhere. And so then, and then they will sing psalms. That's like the heart of their round of prayer is when they're praying alone in their little hut or together um, when they have sort of communal prayer is you sing psalms and different communities come up with which psalms do you sing when, right? Which exists, you know, to this day. And they're, they're doing that. And then when they're alone in their cell, they might be doing things simple tasks to keep the hands busy but that don't take too much mental effort so you can keep prey so for example they might be making these woven mats out of rushes from the nile river by just weaving these together to make a mat and then you go and you later on you will sell the mat at market and you, with the money from the mat you will buy some vegetables and things to plant in your garden so you have food to eat so they're they're mad but the point of the manual labor that they choose is that it's not super taxing, and you can pray while you do it. So that's one of their practices. Um, and they, 
Also, if they're literate, they are supposed to also spend time. So in Pacomius's monastery, they're all supposed to learn how to read in his community so that they can spend part of their day reading the Bible. So they're reading the Bible and they're praying and everything else is, is geared around supporting that lifestyle of prayer and scripture. So sort of those are the main practices. Um, their prayer practice besides the Psalms will also include things like, of course, the Lord's Prayer, um, other prayers from scripture, but also if you sort of start going higher up amongst some of them, a desire to sit still in the presence of God, to open up your heart and your mind for him to come in. So it's not, and so this is the more mystical aspect of what they're up to, right? So this is when you're not necessarily weaving a mat or cooking vegetables for the brethren. It's when, you know, someone is sitting alone in his cell or standing on a hill all night long. And all he's doing is either repeating a simple prayer, Jesus, help me, Jesus, save me, or simply the name of Jesus. Repeat the Lord's name over and over again, remembering your Savior who died for you. Say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. They have these sorts of simple prayer practices. Oh, God, make speed to save me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me from the Psalms. You repeat that over again, or you simply try to clear your mind of all thought with the purpose of God filling it up. And this, if you want to talk about Christian mysticism, I think is one of the most important distinctions between the historic practices of the church and some of the, I don't know if they're actually Eastern practices, but the ones that Westerners associate with Eastern mysticism, right? I don't know enough about Buddhism or Hinduism to say what, you know, a Buddhist or Hindu from China or India would do. But when a Westerner starts practicing their stuff, it's all about sort of just emptying your mind. But what are you filling it with? And the Christian's point is, I'm not really trying to empty my mind. I'm trying to make room for God to fill me. So I'm, I'm emptying my spirit of sort of attentive thought to anything else. Right. And they would actually be at home where there's a saying attributed to Martin Luther that you can't stop birds from flying overhead, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. And so part of what you do in the stillness is pay attention to your thought and don't linger over anything that isn't clearly of God. Even if it's mundane, you're, oh, whoa, what is, you know, those things where you do over and over again, oh, thinking about supper 17 times, you need to stop thinking about supper and start thinking about God. And so then sitting still, and that's also why the weaving of the mats is important for the watching of the thoughts. Um, I have found the phys physical prayer practices, even just holding a book of prayers or something, can really help you focus what you're doing because the mind wanders so easily. So these are some of the practices. I realize I went beyond just the practices, but the practices have this goal. So you're fasting, you're getting up early, you're going to bed late. You might pray all night sometimes. You're weaving mats. Um, you're doing all of these things with a specific purpose of taming the passions in order to reach to God and be filled with Him. Did they view this as something that was necessary for everybody? Did they feel like they were doing a unique project? Did they think that most that this is just baseline Christianity? That's a hard one to answer because I think some of them seem to have thought that yes. This is what everyone should be doing, and the people who aren't doing it have missed it. Others of them, I think, see themselves as being, I don't know that they would use these words, but I think of them as living icons that 
they are being used. They've been called to this strange, particular expression of the faith that is more intense to remind the people who can't because they're married or they have a job and a family to support and all these things. That if you can't go and join them in the desert, they serve as an encouragement to you of what are of of what it could be and what can you do in your circumstance as well. Um, and there are actually a lot of stories about when monks start to think, I'm better than everybody in the city. Um, this is one of them. I think it's Macarius, the Egyptian Macarius the Great. There's a story where he's sort of starting to get proud. And so an angel comes to him one night and takes him to Alexandria and shows him a baker. And this man just goes to work every day, makes the bread, makes the dough, puts the bread in the oven, does the baking. And he prays and he goes home to his family and he prays and he does these things. And the angel says that that man is holier than Macarius off in the desert, this man who's just a simple baker living his Christian life. Right, so there is the temptation and it will always exist. This is the great danger that the monastic movement will always have that monks think they're better than the rest of us. And so then stories like that are meant to be that they're not better and they're not what everyone is supposed to be, but they are what they are supposed to be, if that makes sense. Well, you mentioned an angel taking him away to see like a guy, and uh, I think you said it was a baker. Um, yeah. And and it's and and that was in the readings in your class. I remember reading this stuff, and I'm like, "This is this really happened?" I mean, like, because these mystical experiences are pretty intense, especially in particular the ones in which they are fighting like the devil. They are having these intense spiritual kind of moments. Can you talk about that level of mysticism? That these kind of you know really intense spiritual battles they're facing. What, what do we make of that? Yeah, that so this is one of the things I think they're they're amazing stories, right? So you read stories such as Antony, this is he's sort of the he's the guy, right? So Antony goes and he locks himself away in some tombs, and while he's there, all the denizens of hell come out. That's the way Athanasius puts it in the bio, in the biography, the hagiography of Antony's life. And their whole purpose is just to distract him. And if that was all it was, I'd be like, oh, wow, you know, I guess, you know, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And what does the devil fear more than the Christian on his knees? Nothing. Right. So you're like, OK, but then they also start beating him up. And that's the part where I, I just don't know where to go. Like, I'm willing to accept the fact that Christians have and do continue to at times have actual visual encounters with the demonic. Right. I believe in demons in the sense that they're real um, and all as well as encounters with the angelic. Um, but some of the stories like angels, be not angels beating people, but demons beating people up or people beating demons up. My favorite one is, I won't give too many of these weird stories, but Tenuti of Atrope, he's this mid fifth century monk. He, well, he lives for like a hundred years. A lot of them live a long time. It's amazing. And one day a demon appears at his monastery to rest like an imperial commissioner who has come to ask for tax. But Shinudi knows he's not going to be deceived. He knows this is a demon. So he goes out and he beats the demon up and drives the demon away. And I just want to think, I wonder, is, is that true? Was it a demon or was it actually a tax collector? It was like, whoa, that monk's tough. I'm not coming back. Yeah. Like, like, did he just beat up some poor bureaucrat? Yeah. Um, I'm just here to give you your pizza, man. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> so, but, uh, so that's the sort of question that I sort of end up having. Um, but the encounters with demons, I, I do actually think, though, that I have heard other 
I've heard stories because I grew up in, I don't know, because I grew up in the charismatic movement. Like Anglicans have very, we tend to have very strong boundaries about a lot of stuff. Um, but I did grow with people who would claim to have seen demons as well as to have seen angels and that sort of thing. So I'm willing to think that there are times when perhaps God lifts the veil from our eyes and we actually see what's going on around us, right? Um, both in terms of like when Elisha's servant sees um, the armies of the Lord. And so then there's nothing to be afraid of, right? So people have visions of angels along those ways. Apparently, according to Tolkien, he had a vision of his guardian angel once, right? So these things going on into the 21st century. Um, but also I think sometimes God lifts the veil to remind us of the, of the battle. And so then we do are given the grace of seeing demons, which you might think, oh, what's the grace there? The grace there is to be like, get ready, get on your knees and fight. And so I'm willing to accept the fact that um, the Desert Fathers and other monks throughout history and other Christians, um, often in cultures other than ours, have had these sorts of encounters with the demonic, having had and, and seeing having visions of them. And what I believe actually is going on is that we, I think, in modern society, have incubated ourselves um, from this closeness that. Um, the more civilized we are, the more material comfort we have, the less the demons have to try. That it's easy for us to forget God. So they don't have to come and beat us up. Not, I'm not saying they wouldn't literally beat, didn't literally beat St. Anthony up, but they don't have to come and do all of these things. Instead, we can just watch Netflix, right? That the demons can achieve their ends without taking off the mask um, for most people. And so I think that's part of why perhaps we don't see this sort of story as much. I'm not saying every single story that comes out of the ancient desert is a true story, but as terms of are some of them true, I think so. And I think that they are a reminder of what happens when you start really getting going, um, that you will start encountering these things. I also, of course, um, I take... The entire ancient church has a lot of miracles running through it in other kinds, right? Lots of healings and those sorts of things. I'm very credulous when it comes to healings um, in the ancient world. Maybe some of them were fakery like you can encounter in some churches today. I don't know. Other things, though, since we're talking about the miraculous, in terms of me as a historian, I don't know where to put them. In terms of me as this teaches a lesson, this is a a helpful way perhaps to approach literature. So my favorite one is crocodile writing, which I just, every time the Desert Fathers come up, I'm like, I'm going to bring up crocodile writing. So there's a story where there's this crocodile that's like lurking in the Nile because that's what they do. And there, there are people who live in a village, but the church is across the river. I don't know. The Nile's really big. I don't know if any of the listeners have been to Egypt, but it's a huge river. If you're like an, an ancient person, it's not an easy thing to get across. It's a bit unfortunate to have your church on the other side. But it's preventing these people from getting to church. So they can't go and they can't um, participate in the Holy Communion and join with the other believers to praise and worship God and all of these things. And so then one of the monks comes out from the desert and he says, don't you worry, guys. And so he summons the crocodile. I'm not. And gets on its back and rides a crocodile across the Nile scolds it and sends it away and it never comes back again now did a man ever ride a crocodile i want it to be true who wouldn't isn't that cool i hope it's true i hope it's true 
And whether it's true or not, though, what this is showing us is that we, redeemed in Christ, being purified through, by God's grace, God's grace using the ascetic actions that we do. Um, this is one of the things actually that comes up again is the asceticism itself is meaningless without God's grace to make you holy. That God uses your actions as his tools. He is still the one who makes you holy. This comes up again and again in the desert literature. So without God's, but that if you're becoming holier, are you not becoming like Adam? And if you're becoming like pre-fall, right, you're entering oh, some I sort see. of prelapsarian existence. And so you're becoming like Adam before the fall, and Adam could summon the animals. The animals didn't fear him, and he gave them their names. And so could it be that you now know the name of the crocodile, that you are now able to tame it and ride it across the Nile River and make it do as you command? Because you, made in the image of the God who created it, are becoming its master, as is your part of your original intention as a human being created by God. So that is sort of, that's the theological lesson. And that's one of the things I like to try to do is, it's almost impossible to disentangle miracles. And there are going to be some weird teachings that come in them. But there's a question of, is there a theological takeaway from something in the lives of the Desert Fathers that reminds us of some important truth? And the idea that we are can be restored to a true position as lords of creation, not just like, I mean, going down and cutting down a forest doesn't really, isn't the kind of lordship that God really necessarily had in mind, but being able to command the animals, right? That we can be restored to a fullness of a relationship as opposed to the fracture that had come about between us and the created order as a result of the fall. This is something that the Desert Fathers can actually teach us about. So, I mean, but did they write these accounts? As though they really happened. I mean, you could. I mean, I guess the cynical side is, is that being deceptive. If they're even if they're trying to show us a theological truth, it, it's sort of like when people talk about the Old Testament and they try to dehistoricize everything about it. That there's just this kernel of truth under it. I mean, you know, are are they writing these things as though people reading it ought to be like it really happened to that dude? I think so. Which be only because. I'm, I'm sort of reading, I'm doing a lot of work on St. Augustine right now in the 5th century. And most people, when they, they sort of come up and say, hey, hey, Augustine, there's a miracle happened. He says, oh, okay. Hmm. He never doubts that a miracle happened. He might doubt what is the cause of the miracle, or he might doubt the person. But the possibility of the miracle is always a thing that any ancient Christian seems to be ready for. They're ready for the possibility that the miracle is true. And so... Who originally tells the stories if they aren't true? Right? Who originally tells the crocodile writing story if it's not actually a true story? That, I guess, is part of the question. I think the guys who write them down, I think, tend to believe them. So we sort of have this collection of, of writings that come around the year 400 and a bit after. I'm written down by people who had visited the Desert Fathers um, and met a, a good number of them or heard stories about them. And it's interesting, usually the weirder stories are about guys they never met. Whereas the guys they met is like, oh yes, so-and-so was holy. Or, yeah. it's just, or if it's about a guy they met, they never saw him perform 
the miracle. They never met him while riding a crocodile. They met him while he was sitting in his cell and he gave them some spiritual wisdom. But they heard from somebody else that he once rode a crocodile. Huh. Well, so, talk a little bit more about their the sort of the the demon fighting thing. I mean, did they ever do exorcisms? Or I mean, what was it like when they would? I remember one of the, the classes. It was a very I think you showed. I forget who it was, but it was this very intense description of like um, even just them fighting with their own flesh. I mean, like what do we what do we do with those kinds of intense experiences? Are those things that we should be experiencing more. Yeah, so there are exorcism stories um, to sort of take the first point. So the demons hate the monks. The demons actually, just so you know, listeners, the demons hate you too, um, right? The demons as the minions of Satan are actually out here to corrupt and destroy everything that God has made. Um, that's, that's their goal. Um, they are evil and evil itself is a lack of, is a lack of being ultimately. It is a corruption and a destroyer. It is not a creator. And so then demons come to fight the monks. And of course, the normal way, first of all, that a demon fights a monk is the same way that a demon will mostly fight you, is to tempt, to test, to try out how good you are. So it's to sort of tempt you to get distracted at prayer, something simple like that, or sort of tempt you with lustful thought, right? <clears throat> so that's mostly what that's most of the activity of demons. But demons also are capable of what we term demonic possession. And this is the thing that has always gone on. It's the thing that still goes on um, to this day where the demon basically assumes control over a human body and suppresses the personality of the person whose body it is and animates it. And so this is a thing that happens. And there are a few various different stories. Um, typically. With the earlier Desert Fathers, um, it is sort of a command in the name of Jesus that the demon come out. And then very frequently, the person who has been exorcised becomes a monk. That's often where the stories occur, is that someone brings um, a person who is possessed to one of the monasteries or one of the communities or one of the hermits. He gets exorcised, and then he becomes a monk as well. And that's sort of, it's sort of like the, it's the origin story for some hero, is that mm. he used to be possessed by demons, and then the demons were cast out in the name of Jesus. Later on, um, people start getting anointed with oil as well as part of the process, um, which strikes me as a really good, um, there's a strong biblical precedent for healing, right? And so um, exorcism is a form of spiritual healing. And so then, you know, anointing people with oil um, to set them free from demonic oppression and possession is another thing um, that is going on. So. There was a second part of your question, wasn't there, Brian, beyond yeah, possession? Just, um, I'm almost wondering, like, you know, because there's these intense uh, battles with, like, spiritual battles that they're facing, battles with their own flesh. And I'm just wondering, like, is that what we're supposed to be doing? You know, should we be right. having these kinds of intense, I mean, because the, the, the way that they described from what I remember, I'm like, I've never even gone close to something like that? Um, are they being dramatic? Or is that actually, we're not fighting as hard as we should be? This is a good question, because they do tend to say things like, unless you're being tempted, you're already in sin. Which is sort of like, whoa, all I'm doing, wow. you know, yeah. it's like, right. um, 
unless they have an extraordinarily broad definition of what includes temptation. Sure. Um, who basically everyone's sitting all the time, right? Yeah. I'm sitting down and I'm reading Augustine, St. Augustine, undistracted. I must be sitting, right? So clearly there's like, um, you have to take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. But I do think that we should have, uh, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. We should have more of this combat mindset, I believe, um, both in terms of what I guess we could call a healthy mortification of the fle flesh, as well as um, fighting the demons as well, right? Because you, um, you have the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you can't really, strictly speaking, fight the world except for resisting it, I guess you could say, resisting um, all the things that will come at you just from looking at ads, listening to the radio, listening to songs on the radio. Um, talking to your friends, going out for, you know, a meal or a drink with friends and sort of the influence of the world can pull you away from holiness. Um, and then the flesh, the, when we say that, um, we don't literally mean your actual body per se. Um, there's a degree to which the body, as I said, you're, you're a whole person. And so when we say the flesh, we mean the temptations that come from your own selves, right? Um, so you need to be fighting against that. And that's why the Desert Fathers have um, a strong emphasis on something called watchfulness. Um, and watchfulness, not to be confused with the sort of modern mindfulness movement, um, watchfulness is just pay attention to your thoughts. Don't necessarily do nothing. I mean, they do often say do nothing but sit around and listen to the thoughts. But if you are doing, even when you're doing things, pay attention to your thoughts. And when a thought comes, if you're being watchful, this is a form of fighting. It's a way of saying, is this thought good, bad, or neutral? If it's good, it's either from God, an angel, or by ultimately it's from God, even if it comes from perhaps your own grace-filled self having been baptized. Um, so then if it's bad, is it from, is it just from random outside influences? Is it from the demons? Is it from yourself? And then what you do then is you take up your handbook, and the handbook for fighting is the Bible. And so this, this one guy, Evagrius of Pontus, put together a book. It's called the Antireticos, the, the handbook for fighting back. And it's just, a whole, it's like a series of temptations with Bible verses. And so what the idea is, oh, you're, you're afflicted with the temptation to fornication. You pull out the Antireticos, you pull out the fighting back, and you find Bible verses, and you speak scripture back back to yourself, back to the world that surrounds you, back to the demons who are trying to make you sin. And the remarkable thing about this form of, we, of spiritual combat is that mostly it just means you keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. You don't necessarily need to be as hardcore as the Desert Fathers often make it seem, right? You just need to have a deep familiarity with Scripture to be able to fight back. And that, I think, is perhaps what most of us lack, and perhaps that's why we do need to ramp it up, that we aren't well-equipped enough. We don't have memorized enough of the Bible to be able to respond to these attacks. Um, a modern, I was reading a modern Orthodox monk um, who lives in England in Essex, um, Father Zacharias, and he was counseling people that you shouldn't be trying to always look for things specifically, but just get to know the Bible. Keep reading the Bible over and over and over again. And then when someone comes to you in need, 
or you are tempted, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind the things you've already filled your mind with. So you will find the right Bible verse. You don't need to, mem- you don't actually have to do the Evagrius thing, basically. You don't have to memorize, oh, what is a great one for when I'm tempted to be greedy, right? We'll just know the Bible so well. And that's the main thing is prayer and scripture are your two defenses. And I think most of us, to be honest, probably need to fight harder, even if we don't have to fight as hard as the Desert Fathers, that 10 minutes of quiet time in the morning may not be enough. Maybe it is, right? That's the other thing that I've learned reading ancient and medieval mystics and things is that, hey, you know, someone will spend his whole life struggling and fighting really hard just to get that one bit of consolation from God. Some other guy, for whatever reason, gets it in an instant. Some people will struggle to overcome certain sins and fight for it for years. And other people will just have that same struggle, but briefly. And that's just sort of the variation of human experience. And so maybe for some of us, actually, you know what, Professor Hoskin, I'm going to stick to my 10 minutes because it is all the fighting that I need to do. That's the concentrated fighting I need to do to get through the day. Maybe if that's you, that's great. I think for me, I think maybe my 10 minutes needs to be shifted maybe or upped to be able to up my game, to be able to respond in a holy way, right? Because so I have a normal day job. I don't know if your listeners probably don't know that because they don't know me. And so it, it actually, one of the reasons why I think I need to up my game is because it's so easy to laugh at rude, crude jokes because they are kind of funny, right? It's the lowest form of humor. or to say something cynical and sarcastic because you know it'll get you in with your work friends. But actually, I should be modeling holiness and I should know when not to laugh. I should know which sarcastic comments, probably all of them, to keep to myself. And I should be working to build up everyone in the workplace, not to tear down. And some people, if your tenements a day is providing you with that, that's beautiful. If it's not, you either need to change the 10 minutes or start doing more. And that, I think, because that's the actual battle, right? This is the arena. This is the fight. And the demons are there. And they're going to tempt you to say that sarcastic thing, that mean thing about a person who's not there, that crude joke, or to laugh when someone says something that you as a Christian actually shouldn't think is funny, or if you do, is a reminder that you're not yet holy. And so... These are sorts of the real world applications, I think, for the spiritual combat. And if you're like, but I'm having trouble, maybe I'm going on a bit, right? But um, if you're thinking, ah, but I'm having trouble being able to focus my heart and my mind in these ways, I think that's why of the other disciplines, like fasting and like, like really set prayer times, exist. Because they teach us discipline. Um, so this is one of the things growing up Anglican, we always we did Lent. So you in, in Lent you usually do something like, oh, I give up chocolate or whatever. The, the act of giving up something neutral strengthens the will. God's grace will use that to enable you to have the discipline to fight when it matters, because you're training your will and your heart. Because you're doing it for God. You're not just if you're just giving up chocolate because it's what every other kid was doing that year, grace alone is going to help you. If your will cooperates with grace, I think God's going to 
go even further with you. That if you're giving up things in order to become more disciplined, to love God and others more, I think that's really going to do going to do more for you. That is some fascinating stuff. I mean, I think there's a lot to say. That, I mean, gosh, I'm just even thinking about my own life. I'm like, wow, you know, it, it really does kind of convict you in a, in a lot of ways. I, I mean, I, I feel like in, uh, you know, especially in reform circles, there's kind of the, you know, don't seek experiences. Uh, the objective truth is what matters. Experientialism leads to emotionalism, leads to all the kinds of, you know, bubblegum church things that are around today. I mean, what would you say to people who say, oh, these desert fathers, just, it's just emotionalism, it's experientialism, it's total subjectivity. These are not things that we want to chase around. I would point them to the, ex- to the experience of people who, who, got, who didn't have those experiences but lived out the disciplines and pursued holiness anyway. Um, and this is, which is hard to trace in the most ancient layers of the, of the tradition because Eastern monks don't tend to talk about it. So if you're reading Greek guys, Syriac guys, Egyptian guys, they aren't actually going to be talking about the experiences. The hagiographer might talk about the experiences, right? But if you read, say, the letters of Barthenufius and John, these amazing guys in the 500s who are just absolutely wonderful, besides the fact that I love saying Barthenufius. <clears throat> you read the letters of Barthenufius and John, and if these guys ever had any experiences it, they don't talk about their own experiences mm. if they had what we would call a mystical encounter with god they don't talk about it um but for them they know that this is the pursuit of holiness this is what it looks like and so and they model that in story in in amazing ways like i'm not recommending you go and break yourself into a cell but my favorite barsanufius story is that at some point this is what he did but he was still the abbot of the monastery and so then John, the pro- what we would call a prior in Western terms, um, sort of took over the actual running of the monastery, and he would just slip like food through a crack to Barsanufius every day, and people would write letters back and forth. And people were like, this Barsanufius guy's a fake. And they were talking about outside the cell, because they thought he was a fake. He's just a fake. John made him up um, so he could use him as a play some sort of psychological mind trick on us or whatever. And Barsanufius broke through, right? They were talking mud bricks. We're not talking like modern bricks. So he broke through the wall, came out, and then he got a basin of water, washed the feet of every monk there, turned around, and bricked himself back in. So if you want to talk about what is the experience of God, I'm not saying you need to be like Barsanufius, but you, how do you, what is the experience of God? It is found in how we live in community with others. And this, and they're still doing all these these contemplative mystical practices, but not necessarily being guaranteed an experience. And the one person who I can talk about for this is a 19th century Russian guy, uh, St. Seraphim of Sarov, who was blessed at some point with one of these experiences. He sort of, his face shone sort of like Moses is dead. This is what is said anyway. Um, but he went through a period of time of approximately 10 years where he felt like God wasn't there. Hmm. So his, the experience of God for St. Seraphim was negativity. It was like praying into the void, into the darkness. What he felt with his emotions was a nothingness. But he continued nevertheless to pray 
and pursue a holy life and to perform. He was a priest, so he performed his duties for his congregation and did all these things, but he himself felt nothing. And he continued along those things, and he got the blessing. St. Siloan the Athenite, who's from Mount Athos in Greece, has a similar story where he would, it was just nothing, and it did, but it didn't matter because exactly the truth isn't subjective. Right? If you want to pursue holiness, your, your relative holiness might be subjective, but the holiness of God is an objective reality that you are focused towards. And so then if you want to be seeking God um, and looking at the Desert Fathers and their relative holiness or whatever, they might subjectively be more holy, but we don't know what their experiences are a lot of the time. And a lot of the time it does seem to have been feelings of feelings of actually speaking into the void um, and not the sorts of, not those more St. Francis sort of charismatic ecstasy kinds of moments that first drew me to monasticism. What did, you know, like the reformers think about these guys? Do you have any idea? Did they look back? Did they poo-poo them? Were they skeptical? I would say that I don't know for sure what they said about the Desert Fathers. Um, there was a general... There was a general distaste for the monastic movement at large, um, but that was like that was very. Greg Peters gets into this in his book, The Story of Monasticism. The sort of, and of course his book, Reforming the Monastery. But I haven't read that one. But in the Story of Monasticism, he talks about um, there are no problems with any individual monastic practice, like Luther and Calvin were like, well, sure. Yeah, Christians, should, yeah, fasting, sure, praying all the time. Why not living in community? These are all fine things. Celibacy, yeah, like those are those are acceptable things for a Christian to do. It was the, the it's the lifelong vow that they said the only lifelong vow you can find in Scripture is marriage, and so then they resisted that. Just as actually they would also resist the idea that you were a priest forever. Actually, right, that that's part of Martin Luther's transformation of the concept of vocation in the 16th century. So. I don't know what they specifically had to say about the Desert Fathers. They have a lot of general things about monasticism. because, But that's because like 16th century monasticism has a twofold problem. It has the holier-than-thou problem that monks do believe that simply by virtue of their monastic vocation, they are holier and closer to God than anybody else. That's one problem. The other one is it's corruption and abuse. If you go, for example, to our growth, in Scotland, which you should do because it's a lovely town, there are the ruins of the abbey that, uh, you know, one of the many ruined abbeys of Scotland. And, but there's like, the abbot's house is on the edge of the monastery. And the last abbot of Arbroath Abbey lived in this house with his mistress and seven children. And they're like, you know what? Just like, don't be a monk, right? <laughs> um, and so they were like, it... You, you either succeed at it and think you're better than others, or you fail at it, and you should just get married and yeah. just not try to be a monk and be a holy Christian because part of the, this is, I suppose, part of the, temp, the temptation or part of the problem um, with a situation like that of the abbot of our growth is that it wouldn't have been a sin to get married and have seven children. But he's breaking of what was meant to have been a lifelong vow, and he's also committing, and he's like, 
committing perjury at some level that he's not getting married because he can't get married without getting released from the vows, or but then he loses his job if he gets released from the vows, right? And I think that this would ultimately lead to further abuses and further sins for many monks, that I've already done this, uh, right? This is when we set the standard for holiness somewhere unreasonable, then you fail here, you say, well, then whatever, I'll also have drunken parties. Right. I'm already living with my mistress. I've already had seven kids with her. Let's just have all the boys over. Well, that's a good uh, thing to bring up because I want to ask, what do you think we should not take from the Desert Fathers? Where's where some ways they've gone too far that we should be cautious about? So definitely the when we need to keep in mind the story of the angel taking St. Macarius to the Alexandrian baker. Right. If you and this for a reformed audience, this is like less of a danger, as I've learned talking to my friends. Um, if you do start getting into the disciplines, I think it will be healthy for you. Don't start thinking that you getting into the disciplines means that you are holier than anybody else. Take the disciplines as a means that God can make you holy. This is the perennial temptation of monasticism, and it comes up in various parts of the desert literature. The other thing that we'll find in the 4th and 5th centuries in particular is that the wild experimentation that's going on, um, there is an unhealthy, there can be an unhealthy treatment of the body, right? So I talk about how the flesh itself in, a, in healthy monastic theology is not regarded as the seat of evil. There are, um, including amongst men considered saints, like St. Simeon the Stylite, there is excessive mortification of the body. Um, this is a man who, at one point, wrapped a chain around his waist and went and lived in the bottom of a well. And um, his flesh started wasting away because he had an iron chain, and he's living in water, and they're like, there are like maggots on his living flesh at one point. Uh, before he climbs onto the pillar. And then he's standing on the pillar with no roof, baked in the Syrian sun. Um, you know, I've never been to Syria. I've been to Cyprus, though. Cyprus gets hot and dry, and it's like living in an oven if you're in Cyprus in the summer, right? Syria is probably hotter because it has less less sea to mitigate that. Um, in fact, what makes Cyprus so hot is the wind that blows from Syria across the middle of the island, the hot winds that come from the desert. So you have a guy living in Syria on a pillar, and he's getting, like, blisters on his body because he's standing in the hot sun baking. Simeon the Stylite, interesting guy, bad example, um, right? And that is, that is the main thing, is that don't wreck, don't wreck your body, right? Which may be not going to be a problem for most contemporary Reformed people. That is just, just a thing. But don't also think that, um, so you, you sort of, you can moderate that, right? Say, oh, well, don't worry, I'm not going to do that. But the, there's still this temptation to start I don't know. Poo-pooing normal guys, normies, yeah. right? Um, which some of which I think comes up in certain aspects of monastic literature, right? Um, that it's not even that I'm holier than you. It's that like you're not even on the same plane as me, like you know. So, for example, when you start getting into the hardness of the desert, into these stories about men who have nothing but darkness but still pursue God, still pursue holiness, you start thinking that that 
that non-experience is better than the experience that's being had at the Pentecostal church down the street, right? Because and and I and I have a feeling a lot of the desert fathers would say yes, it is, um, and I think that holiness says neither of these is all that matters is God. Neither of these is better, mm. um, which because these these are the two temptations when you start getting into it is um, what some term illuminism where you're seeking the experience as opposed to God Himself, and then the other one is a form of quietism where you are seeking the stillness and the darkness simply for itself rather than seeking God through it. And yeah. so that's, those are the two temptations that I would say, because the desert fathers are like this wild buried bunch. Yeah. So if we want to talk about things to, to avoid there, like any problem that any monk in history has had this really intense period in Egypt and, and Syria, Palestine, they did it. If there was something wrong to do, some desert monk tried to do that wrong thing. Don't worry. So, Maybe just coming to conclusion, what about today? I mean, who are the heirs of the mystics today? Is it the is it the charismatics? I mean, you said you grew up in a charismatic church. You know, who who do you think is kind of representing this stream? The modern so there, yeah. Thanks, Brian. That's this is a good question because there is a direct um, lineage um, from the Desert Fathers to um, certain Eastern Orthodox monastic centers in particular that I would never um, speak, speak of. Um, St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai. Um, so we're talking about Mount Sinai, just there is a monastery there. And so that's actually the Desert Fathers, right? Um, and there are still monasteries in Egypt in these places, as well as Mount Athos. And so there's an, this is sort of these Egyptian Coptic Eastern Orthodox traditions of monasticism are still alive today. Um, and it's, but that doesn't mean that the rest of us don't have it, right? Because it also has a, a Western trajectory that you find, because um, St. Benedict is part of the direct line through of desert monasticism as well. So if you think of, um, there's a whole family of monastic groups in the West, in sort of Latin or Roman Christianity, Benedictines and Cistercians and bunch of guys you probably never trappists are all follow the rule of saint benedict and are all ultimately descendants of the desert fathers but there's also a less because we're protestants there is within protestantism a less broadly organized ongoing re i would say resourcement or re-engagement with this tradition that often involves um, guys like me who have spent so much time reading these books and want to share it with others. Um, and so you can find it living at your local church if you start talking to people. Um, and that, but of course, I'm not, the, the difficulty is we are trying to find this balance between um, desert ideals and being married with children and a job that you work from 9 to 530 or whatever. Um, so... But I do encourage people, if you want to, to find out more about how this could be a is a living tradition, um, like you don't have to abandon your Reformed principles to go and talk to an Orthodox priest or a Benedictine monk somewhere. I have enjoyed enormous hospitality with Benedictines in Austria. You don't have to go that far. Um, and um, as well as um, a lot of Anglicans, there has there was in the 19th century, sort of 
monastic revival in the Church of England, so there are Anglican monasteries, and you might be surprised the number of Anglican priests you might meet who are themselves actually what you would call oblates, They're who are sort of non-monks who are attached to a monastery, and so they get spiritual guidance from the abbot of the monastery and a spiritual father and all these sorts of things. So there are places and people who, who are out there trying to figure out how do we adapt this um, today to our own lives in the modern world. And I would love to see a sort of more visible Protestant reclaiming of this where, because I don't believe that there's anything, the, obviously, I guess I'm the guy who would say this, but I think that the best things about the monastic movement are entirely compatible with Anglican Reformed Lutheran theology. Um, like we can, if we're parts of those traditions um, and or Baptists as well, sort of if you stand somewhere in that, I think the best parts of the monastic tradition in terms of spiritual disciplines that you can grab onto to help you get holier, it works. Like it's not an incompatibility. Um, because there are actual theologians within the monastic tradition. You may have heard of one of them, St. Augustine of Hippo, um, who have been working through the question of, well, how do, the, what, how do my works relate to God's grace? And Augustine isn't the only guy who says that, look, all of this asceticism is good, but it only works good because of God. And so then that, which will bring you right into a more Protestant zone, that's well said. You brought Augustine in at the end just to give it all that credibility for everyone. <laughs> and, uh, no, but I appreciate that uh, everything that you said, Matt. I think it's really helpful. I was I learned a ton. I mean, because again, this is a very under underdeveloped part of my theology, my understanding, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And so I appreciate your work, the scholarship you put in, and uh, and 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 the encouragement, the practical encouragement to, you know to follow in their steps and, and to learn some important things from these Christians who have, uh, who have sought after God. And I think that was a good word to say, you know, you're looking for God. You're not looking for an, an experience in and of itself, or you're not looking just to be an ascetic, but you're looking uh, to experience that union with God, to know, to know God. And I think that's a, that's a helpful thing to, to remind us of. So Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you guys enjoyed this, uh, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also check out our brand new website, battlepreach.io. You can go there and uh, make sure you share this with people. If you think uh, people could be encouraged by this, um, if you want to you know, maybe learn a little bit more about uh, Eastern mysticism, or not Eastern, Christian mysticism, <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put some links to uh, Dr. Hoskin, uh, his, some of his works. And uh, make sure if he teaches a class again, you sign up on Davenant Hall and uh, it'll be well worth the money for that. But again, I hope you enjoyed this. Share with your friends, leave a good review and we'll be back next week.